Well, Merry Late Christmas. Happy Early New Year to everyone. Um, glad you decided to be here on this, this last Sunday of 2019, of uh, the second decade of uh, this uh, century, yeah, and this millennium. So kind of a, uh, so what? Second decade, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad you chose to spend this Sunday morning with us uh, on, on this day. Yeah, glad to see you back too, Thomas. I uh, hope everyone had a Merry Christmas. Uh, I'm obviously not Bryce. Bryce and Anna are uh, either in Dallas or on the way back from Dallas. Went to see the, the Tigers play in the Cotton Bowl uh, over there. Um, and so I get the privilege of getting to, to lead you in song today and also uh, as we look at the Word of God together um, through a sermon. Full disclosure to you, um, if you were here two years ago, the last Sunday of 2017, this sermon may sound familiar to you. This is sort of a little bit of a rerun, um, so self-plagiarism, but, but not because I'm citing myself, so I'm just letting you know. Uh, this is some rehashing of some things that I've, that I've spoken to you about before, just, just so you know, in case it sounds, sounds familiar to you. But I think um, the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to us through His Word uh, regardless uh, today. Um, and so I hope everyone had, uh, had a good Christmas, a uh, good Advent season. Hope you made time between all of your various family gatherings, um, gifts, food, lights, whatever you did to celebrate uh, this season. I hope you made time to celebrate not just family, not just being together and all the other warm, fuzzy, hallmark things of the season, but the incarnation of Christ, the reason for the season, as cliche as that is. I hope you made time to remember Christ uh, this season. It's so easy, um, I think, for us, even um, as Christians, um, even if you have, you know, primarily Christian family uh, or, you know, family who acknowledges, you know, uh, Christ in some way. It's very easy for, to, for us to get together to celebrate Christmas but not celebrate Christ. Um, I noticed that in my family years ago that we would have these wonderful gatherings around the holiday season that, you know, were filled with food and, you know, fun, good times and everything. But, like, maybe we said a blessing and that was it. <laughs> you know, that, that might have been the, the, the extent of our acknowledging Jesus and our uh, celebration of his birth, which is ironic. It's kind of bizarre. Um, but we can get so caught up in these sort of cultural celebrations that, that are really good things a lot of the time, um, things that we, we look, look back um, on the memories of with fondness. Um, but we can get so caught up in the sort of secular celebration of Christmas that we miss the sacred celebration of the incarnation, the, the one who should be at the center of all of our celebration. And so I hope that this Advent season you weren't so caught up in the, the good things of Christmas that you missed the great thing of Christmas, which is Christ who took on flesh to ransom his people. We took a little post-Christmas trip up to Branson uh, this week, uh, got back last night, and uh, Thursday night we saw uh, at the Sight and Sound Theater, we saw a... Um, a dramatic presentation, a play of, of the birth of Christ, um, super extra-biblical uh, play. Uh, but it was good. It was good. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't unbiblical. It was just extra-biblical, you know, a lot of added things. Um, but I was struck by um, this moment where, you know, the angel comes to visit Mary and tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, right? And so in that moment, Mary is not pregnant. Um, the angel tells Mary she will be. And so they kind of made uh, a moment in the play out of this moment where Mary kind of realizes that the Holy Spirit has conceived a child inside of her. Um, and, you know, she like looks into a light and it's, you know, whatever. We don't know how that happened. 
But uh, have you ever considered, um, when we think about, you know, God taking on flesh, like that blows your mind, you ever realize that the full, the fullness of the God who spoke the universe into existence dwelt in an embryo? It was embedded into a uterus? Like, that God, like, it became that small. And really, the incarnation happens at that moment, right? We believe that life begins when a child is conceived, and the, the incarnate Son of God became flesh in the form of an embryo first. And man, I, I just kind of, I mean, I just weeped the whole play, really. I'm glad it was dark because um, I, I cry a lot. At, tr- plays get me in my feelings. And anyway, uh, so that, it was after Christmas, and it got me to, to really think about the wonder of the incarnation. So I hope you had moments like that uh, this month uh, when you really were able to consider the wonder of what it is we celebrate. I mean, it truly is mind-blowing stuff to, to consider uh, what it is that we, that we believe and what we celebrate. And I remember as a kid that uh, Christmas was great, but right after Christmas was always a time when I really felt bummed out because, you know, you spend this month kind of getting ready and doing all these parties and going to parades and looking at lights and whatever, all these fun things. Um, and it's uh, like a long season. It's actually more than a month usually now because, you know, Halloween's sort of become the new Thanksgiving. It's like the, the ushering in of the Christmas season is October 31st. Um, and so there's all this time spent. It's all exciting. And then it's like the 26th. It's just generally over for, for a lot of folks. Um, and, you know, the tree comes down, decorations get, uh, come down, the, the gifts find a spot on the shelf, and that's, that's it. Christmas is over for another year. And I remember as a kid, I felt really kind of depressed uh, as, as a result of really all that excitement building up to this sort of anticlimactic um, December 26th. Um, and sometimes it still makes me feel that way after Christmas. Um, we did get, like I said, we did get to go take this little trip, and so our Christmas celebration was a little extended this year. But, you know, as Christmas fizzles out, uh, it can be kind of a downer. Plus, there's the added, you know, effect if you're off work. It's like, you know, when are we? You know, what, what, is, what day of the week is it? It's really confusing. Um, and so it's kind of a weird, weird season. Um, but Christmas isn't over yet. Um, we're going to do, do a little more Christmas stuff uh, today. Uh, and, you know, we, we kind of follow somewhat some church calendar stuff a little bit. That's why we celebrate Advent. Um, and so in the sort of strict liturgical traditions that follow the church calendar, the first day of Christmas is, uh, my true love gave to me, uh, uh, is the 25th, right? And there's 12 days of Christmas. That's where the, the song, I don't know where all the stuff, the dancing stuff comes from. Um, but there's 12 days of Christmas in the liturgical uh, calendar. And so that means that January 6th is the 12th day of Christmas. So we may not, we may not drag it out that far, but, but in those traditions, January 6th is called Epiphany. And Epiphany is the day the church has traditionally, not in our tradition, but like historically, um, celebrated the visit of the Magi, the wise men. Um, and so there is precedent for remembering the wise men um, after, you know, Christmas. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk a little bit about the wise men. Um, we're also at the end of a year, the end of a decade. Um, in fact, there's only three days left in this decade. So, um, you know, if you haven't finished your Bible reading plan, you better, better get on it. Uh, you got three days, three days left uh, to finish reading the Bible this year. You know, there's really nothing sacred or special necessarily about the end of a year, the end of a decade. But, um, you know, I talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about Advent, how it's, we're, we're people of anticipation, 
Um, and I think there's sort of these, these rhythms that, that can be helpful for us that we can redeem and use for the glory of God. I think the end of a year can be one of those things. You know, the Bible doesn't mandate for us to celebrate the new year. In fact, there's a lot of things that people do to celebrate the new year that probably we shouldn't do. But the end of a year and the end of a decade, um, you know, can be a day of sort of introspective reflection for us. We, you know, we think back to maybe what we didn't do as well in the past year, maybe, maybe what we're glad to move on from, or maybe we look back with, with, with joy over, over the accomplishments of the last year. Um, looking back can, can bring up a multitude of emotions for us really depends on what the previous year, the previous season has held uh, for you. Maybe that's been a season of joy. Maybe it's been a season of sorrow for you. Um, But we have a new year um, ahead of us. And so we can also look ahead to changes that we we hope to make in the coming year. Um, And God willing um, and his spirit empowered, we can make those changes for his glory. And so, so today we, um, I kind of want to converge some themes here. We have uh, in, uh, Epiphany, right? That's coming. Actually, I think that's technically celebrated next next Sunday, which is the celebration of the coming of the wise men uh, to v- visit Jesus. And we have the end of one year and the beginning of another. And so I thought maybe we could merge those things into um, so, something that might be beneficial for you as we examine the story of the wise men. And then we take a look at how those early seekers of Christ can inspire us as we look forward to a new year and a new decade. See, the visit of the wise men really isn't directly a part of the Christmas story. Now, your nativity scene at the house might be different, and the play we went to see in Branson uh, showed that differently. Um, But... the, the visit of the wise men is really a response to Christmas. It's a response to the birth of Christ. And we'll talk more about the sort of timeline of things in a minute. Um, but for us, as we also respond to the birth of Christ, um, may this response be something that causes us to consider the wonder of the incarnation. And may the impact of the word made flesh transform the way that we live heading into uh, 2020. Um, So, if you have a holy book or a holy app, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. The words will be in the ESV behind me, I think, if I put that up there. I think I did. It's been like a week since I've put everything in here, so if there's mistakes, I'm sorry. Okay, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men came, uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that... I too may come and worship him. Right. 
after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, wait, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We pray as we consider the word of God. God, we thank you for your word, Lord, for what it reveals to us about um, what you have done for us. And God, for what we can learn in it, Lord, about um, how these early seekers of Christ responded to his coming. And God, as we uh, look at your word today, Lord, would you do the transforming work of your spirit in our hearts? Lord, as we um, look back at this past year, God, whether we are uh, happy to move on from it, Lord, whether we are apprehensive about a new year, Lord, no, no matter what emotions that brings up in us, Lord, we know that you are with us. God, you never change. Your word is sure. And God, we know that, um, that you are sovereign over all. God, you use all things for your glory. And God, we ask that you would be glorified in us as we embark upon the waters of a new year. God, as we consider what your word has to say today, Lord, would you use it um, to do a work in us? Um, God, and it's uh, such a privilege to be gathered here this, um, this last Sunday of this decade. Lord, would you use this time um, to, do, to do your transforming work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about the wise men for a little bit and, and see how the journey of these wise men to see Jesus can inspire us as we pursue him as well. So who were the wise men? Well, we don't really know. Um, the extent of what we definitely know is what we just read in Matthew chapter 2. And that's, that's it. I think that's the only gospel that recounts the story of the wise men. Um, but there are some things we, we know from this passage. And there's also some things that we you know, can probably know from some uh, biblical uh, research that has been done. Um, most of what we think we know about the wise men probably isn't true, at least according to the research that I, that I read. Um, I told Stephen, we, I should, probably should have stuck a Christmas song in the set this morning since we're talking about the wise men. He said we could have done We Three Kings uh, from Orient. Or, well, probably there weren't three, probably they weren't kings, and probably they weren't from the Orient. Um, so that song's out because uh, all that stuff is extra biblical, actually. Um, but there are some things that we, we probably, probably know about them. First of all, they they probably were not kings, um, at least not in the sense that we understand kings as like political rulers. Um, the idea of wise men as kings uh, probably comes from a revisionist reading of Isaiah. Um, there's, this, there's this prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah that says kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Um, and so it's like that's sort of imposed upon that. Like, oh yeah, this must be the fulfillment of that. But there's really no, um, nothing really to make us indicate that these guys were actually kings. Although they probably were men of influence since they were able to, to come into the court of, of Herod. Um, so Matthew doesn't really give us any reason to believe that they were rulers uh, of any sort. Um, and again, this really is, I don't want to nitpick like what you've, 
maybe you always thought, or maybe you already know this, but there probably wasn't, weren't three of them either. The only reason we think there were, like, that, that's sort of like a thing, that maybe there were three wise men, it's because there's three gifts mentioned, but it doesn't say anything about um, three wise men. You know, there's a lot about the Christmas, the Christmas story like that. Like, we always assumed Jesus was born in a stable. The Bible doesn't mention that either. It says he was laid in a manger, which, of course, is what animals eat out of. So, I mean, it's a logical deduction that maybe they were in a barn of some sort. Maybe not. Um, so, you know, there, we, we don't want to assume too much uh, about what the Bible doesn't say, right? Now, I think there is a place for us to have what's been called a sanctified imagination. You know, I mean, I, th- I think it's okay for us to, to think about what people might have said and what might have happened, but we need to distinguish that from what the Bible actually says, right? And not take those things as, as, as truth, you know, only take what the Bible says as the absolute truth. Uh, so anyway, there's three gifts mentioned. Um, good chance there were more than three wise men. Um, and especially if they were guys of political influence who came to the court of the king, Herod, they probably at least had like an entourage with them. Um, but anyway, so they probably weren't kings, probably were more than three. Um, but it does say they were wise men or, or magi, um, other translations say. And the word magi comes from the same Greek word that we get the word, what does that sound like, magi? Magic, right. Same, same root word, magic. So more accurately, instead of being kings, these guys were probably like magicians, right? And I'm not talking about like David Copperfield, you know, Chris Angel, magicians necessarily that like performed on stage, but like court magicians or, or wizard type guys, you know, like Gandalf or, or Dumbledore or Merlin. Um, you know, we also know that these guys uh, studied the stars, Right? We know that they read uh, ancient religious text. And so they were, they were probably more like, like astrologers, um, you know, wizards, uh, that, that sort of thing. I'm reminded when I think of this of uh, the—I the, probably reference this more often than I should in sermons. But the movie, the cartoon movie, The Prince of Egypt, which I really like, um, there's these court magicians who uh, are there with Pharaoh. And whenever Moses comes and does one of the, the wonders, like with the staff— these guys are there to try to replicate it, right? They're like the courts, uh, the, the Pharaoh's magicians, you know, the, the, the court guys. So it's, it's probably more accurate like what these guys were. Or, um, you know, a, a couple weeks ago when I talked about the period of captivity, captivity in Babylon, we talked about how Daniel won favor with King Darius because he was able to interpret dreams. Well, before they called Daniel, um, it says that Darius called his, his magicians, right, to come try to interpret the dreams. And so it's a common thing for these powerful guys to have these sort of, you know, wizard dudes around them um, to try to help them ex- understand things. And so most likely, these guys were like practicers of pagan magic. Um, and, you know, maybe they studied texts, they studied the stars, they studied dreams. And so contrary to how we may often think of them as, as kings, um, they probably were pagan sorcerers um, and sh- astrologers. We do know they were, they were from the east somewhere because it says they saw the star in the west, but, but there's not really any good record that they're from the far east, you know, from the, the orient, which I think is racist now, so from Asia. Um, so they, a lot of scholars think they were from Babylon, which is, which is from, the, from the west at this point. Um, and so that explains why Matthew would use the word behold in, at the beginning of verse 1. Because these aren't guys that you would expect to show up in Judea, right? They're, they're from far away. These are pagan wizards, and yet for some reason they set out on this journey to seek the king of the Jews, and they're following a star to get there. 
And I also want to point out um, that these guys come seeking Jesus probably after he had been born. Um, it does specifically say that they visited Mary and Jesus in a house. Um, and so they most likely didn't visit Jesus on the night of his birth as is portrayed um, commonly. Um, and in fact, later on we see King Herod who's trying to wipe out um, all of the babies in the land because he wants to get rid of this supposed king who has been born. He says that all baby boys two and under are to be um, murdered. And so it could have been up to a couple of years after the birth of Christ before the Magi showed up to visit him. Now again, I don't want to get overly caught up in the marginal details like I've probably already done, but I want to make sure that we take Scripture for what it actually says. All right, so Matthew 2 is the authority on the Magi and what we know about them. Um, so anyway, moving on from all those details, as I mentioned, the visit of the Magi is a response to the advent of Jesus. Um, and so what can we learn from the visit of these wise men that can allow us to live in light of the incarnation as we embark upon a new year? Um, so that's our title today, Living in the Light of the Incarnation. And the first thing we can see uh, from the journey of these wise men to visit Jesus is that the wise men dwelled on God's revelation of Christ. And so there's really two ways that the wise men were inspired to visit the baby king, Jesus. First, they saw his star in the east, right? And somehow they knew that this star was, was special. They knew it was the, the star of the king of the Jews. And they were inspired to follow this star to come worship the king that it represented. Now, obviously, this is some sort of special star. It was like GPS for the wise men. Um, we don't know the specifics of how that worked and how a star led them on this journey. Um, you know, it's possible that what they saw as a star in the western sky was the multitude of the heavenly hosts singing glory to God in the highest, then on earth peace, goodwill to men, right? I mean, imagine the Bible talks about that as, as, a, as, as a multitude of angels, right? I imagine that is bright in the distance, but we don't know, right? We don't, we don't know what they saw other than the fact that it's described as a star. We do know, as John Piper said, that God wields the universe to make his, uh, his son known and worshipped. And this is his great goal in all things, that his son be known and worshipped. So just consider that for a moment. That Almighty God will exert literally astronomical efforts to magnify Jesus. John Piper talks about how God used the rule of Caesar to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in order for God to sovereignly fulfill this prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He, he has Caesar ordain a census to get the parents of the Messiah, or at least the mother of the Messiah, to Bethlehem, a place they did not live so God wields empires. God wields the stars to accomplish his will. You ever consider that? That God is that sovereign that he uses whatever he wants to accomplish his will and to magnify his son. I was thinking, uh, me and Eileen were talking on the way here this morning about um, this decree of King Herod to murder all the babies. And how we've seen that elsewhere in scripture. Right, we see that, in, does anybody remember where? Moses, right? That's what Pharaoh did in Egypt, you know, thousands of years before this. Uh, he wanted to wipe out the Israelites, and so um, he had all the babies be murdered. 
How ironic is it that God is so sovereign that the very place where this infant side takes place, where Moses has to, you know, has to be put in a basket um, to, to escape death there, that that very place is the place that Moses, I mean, that Mary and Joseph flee with Jesus for protection from infant side, from a murderous king. I mean, God uses all things as a part of his sovereign will. And we can't see that. You know, sometimes in the thick of our circumstances, we have no idea what God is up to. And sometimes it feels like he's up to nothing at all. But God redeems everything. God wields empires and stars to accomplish his will. So he can accomplish his will in your life no matter what the circumstances are too. It's incredible to think about how God is sovereign and all that he uses to accomplish his plans. You know, you and I may not have an astronomical experience like the Magi did, but we certainly can observe God's revelation of himself. And we can do it like the Magi did in looking to the things that God has created. We can see the beauty of the creator from the things that he has made. We've talked about this recently in Romans 1. It's what we call general revelation. Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. The psalmist declares similarly in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. When we look at the beauty of what God has made, the the spectrum of colors revealed to us in a rainbow or a sunset, when we see the intricate perfection of a newborn child, when we try to count the stars in the sky and we realize that it's impossible because there's an infinite number of stars in the sky, we should be in awe of the God who spoke and the universe came into existence. And the God who was incarnate in a, in, in a, in a little baby in Bethlehem. Let your mind get lost in the wonder of what God can do and what he has done. But you know, a better way that we can see God revealed to us even more clearly than from this general revelation? God's revealed himself in that way, yes, but he's also revealed himself in more specific, clear ways, and that's through what we call special revelation. Now, namely, this refers to God's word, the Bible. And really, this is the second and more specific way that the wise men are drawn to Jesus They are seeking him by following the general revelation, the star. But it's only through the biblical words of the prophet Micah, quoted by the chief priest in Herod's court, that they know, oh, we're going to Bethlehem. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now, we don't have probably a specific star leading us on this journey through our lives. But we actually have it better than the wise men in many ways. Because we don't have just a little snippet of divine prophecy, which, you know, seems to be all they had. We have the full counsel of the Word of God. We have His full revelation of who Jesus is. How He came to die for sin in our place. How He defeated death and conquered the grave. And how He will return to make all things new. We have an advantage over not only the wise men, but everybody else in Scripture because we have the full counsel of the Word of God. 
revealing all things to us about Christ. And we can know with assurance that he is coming soon. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he anointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. So, like the star of Bethlehem was for the wise men, the psalmist declared, God's word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. We follow the word of God. And so, for us, I think what it means to live in the light of the incarnation as we pursue um, God in a new year means making this resolution. And so, for each of the points, I have a resolution for you to consider for this year. And that's simply this, to make a specific plan to read and to treasure the Bible more this coming year. Now, I know that we all have busy lives, um, you know, I'm, and it's like a competition sometimes to see who's the most busy. When people ask you how you're doing, it's like, a, oh, I'm busy. I say that all the time. Um, you know, and if we don't have a regular habit of reading the Bible, it can be kind of daunting for us to try to start a habit to read and treasure the Bible more. But church, the word of God is the word of life. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And as much as I love to see your faces here on Sunday morning and at missional community and in gospel circles and, and all the other things that, that we do as a church, nothing, literally nothing, is more necessary for spiritual growth and for healthy relationships and for anxious minds and for really all aspects of our lives than God's Word. And not just like necessarily snippets of God's Word, but like a regular diet of God's Word. And so... If you don't have a regular diet of God's Word, I want to challenge you to start that. You have a new year starting on Wednesday morning. You get two more days to slack off and then Wednesday morning. <laughs> start today. That's right. Don't slack off. That's right. But as we, as we consider you know, our, the changes we want to make in our lives moving forward, consider making, consuming God's Word a regular part of your life. And if, and if you can't, you, don't, you may not think you have time for that. What has worked for me in the past um, is looking for the most regular part of my day already and putting God's Word in, in that part. Because it, it can be difficult to try to cre- like carve out a segment of your day. Now, you know, do that if that works for you. But if you've tried and failed before to, to carve out a specific time and that hasn't, you know, you've failed by, you know, St. Patrick's Day or earlier, um, Try to find what's already regular in your life. So, you know, if, you're, if you sit down and eat breakfast every morning, maybe read the Bible during breakfast. If you have a 30-minute commute to work in, uh, in the morning, um, you know, try audio Bible on the way to work. That worked for me. I didn't have a 30-minute commute, but, um, you know, look for some part of your day that's already regular and add the Word of God into that moment, and, that, and then it can become a regular part of your life. You know, the God who, um, who saves by His grace... He sanctifies us by His Spirit. And primarily He does that with the timeless and life-transforming power of His Word. So even a little bit of Scripture is an excellent start. Because um, creating a habit that is sustainable and that is joyful will allow us to become sanctified by God's Spirit in, in 2020.
And so we have this, this full counsel of the Word of God, God's revelation of Himself, consume that in 2020. Secondly, back to the wise men, we see not only did they respond to the revelation of God, but they spent their resources for Christ. And we see that because the wise men brought gifts to the Christ child of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And there's some speculation about these gifts being perhaps like significant, like symbols that gold is regal, so it represents Jesus as king. Uh, Since incense was used by Old Testament priests, that perhaps frankincense represents Jesus as the great high priest. That myrrh, because uh, myrrh is used in the embalming and burial process, that it represents Jesus, um, that he would be the sacrifice for us. But more than that sort of, you know, speculation, we can see that the wise men gave both of their time and of their resources for Jesus. Now, if the wise men were, say, from Babylon, which is a lot closer than, than Asia, um, then the journey from Babylon to Bethlehem would have been at least about 40 days one way. And so this wasn't like a, you know, a quick trip you know, a couple of days journey. Like if you, if you think it was 40 days there and 40 days back and they went a different way back, which means it probably took longer. Like these guys were gone for at least months of their lives. And so uh, they were so overcome with this desire to find this baby king, they gave up months of their lives to do so. And not only did they give up time, uh, they were willing to give of their possessions to honor the king of kings. Now we know that Jesus didn't need this stuff. That Acts 17 tells us that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives, us, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So they weren't necessarily given to meet a need in Jesus' life. I mean, maybe they should have brought some diapers or something to Mary and Joseph. Um, but in some uh, research that I read says that it probably would have been culturally condescending to bring like a care package to a king. But it is possible that Mary and Joseph used these valuable gifts to finance their fleeing to to Egypt later on. Um, It's also doubtful that the Magi brought these gifts as bribes to a king because Deuteronomy 10, 17 says that God is not partial, that he takes no bribe. So what what do these gifts mean? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, besides this sort of potential symbolism of them. John Piper says this, The gifts are intensifiers of desire for Christ himself in much the same way that fasting is. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying, The joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I've not come to you for things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things. In the hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. See, because Jesus gave himself up for us and he laid down his life that we might be redeemed, we ought to be willing to sacrifice all that we have for him. God is the giver of all that we have. You know, overflowing generosity should be the supernatural byproduct of a thankful and content heart. Paul says that generosity proves that our love is genuine. To those whom so much has been given in Christ, we should not be able to keep ourselves from giving of our time and our resources freely for the glory of God. 
And since God is the provider of all that we have anyway, as I pray often when we, when we have our offering time, we should hold what we have in an open hand so that God can put in and take out as he sees fit. But generosity doesn't mean just being willing to give up the things that we have. It means taking practical steps to give up the things that we have. And so God blesses you that you can be a good steward of what he has given you. So that we can uh, supply and multiply our seed for sowing and increase the harvest of our righteousness. According to 2 Corinthians 9.10. Not so that we can hoard up what God has given us. As I pointed out before, God... When he blesses us, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't give us stuff to hoard up. It's like garden fertilizer, right? If we, if we pile up God's blessings, then they just stink. They don't do any good. So we spread the blessings that God has given us around so that they can produce a beautiful harvest. So in response to the wise men giving of their time and of their resources, here's a resolution I want to challenge you with in 2020. That, we, that you might become more cheerful and sacrificial givers of money, time, and resources. Thirdly, we see a transformation in the hearts of the wise men. The wise men were changed by their encounter with Christ. That's your final, final point today. Now, I don't want to read too much into this story. I mentioned earlier, I think it's appropriate for us to, you know, have the sort of sanctified imagination and, and imagine, you know, what things might have been like, you know, some dialogue, whatever. Um, I don't want to read too much into this, but we can see some things that changed in the hearts of the wise men as a result of their encounter with Jesus. Now, we talked about earlier how these guys were probably pagan astrologers and magicians, and we know that they had probably had considerable wealth and political influence because they were able to stroll up into King Herod's court seeking his direction. But why would pagan wizards come looking for the king of the Jews if they weren't themselves Jews? And in fact, during this time, the Jews were under the rule of the Roman Empire and nobody cared about the Jews. Why would these pagan wizards come looking for the king of the Jews? Well, clearly they were being drawn to Christ. Now, they, of course, were being drawn geographically in terms of the star and their, their journey. But I think they were also being drawn spiritually by the Holy Spirit's irresistible grace. Because after they, they found him and they worshipped him, then they were warned in a dream to take a different route home. And they did that. See, they were willing to, to forsake this relationship with old King Herod to give up their political influence and their wealth, they, they forsook much for this baby king. Now, we don't know, of course, if they uh, gave up their pagan uh, practices, if they eventually came to saving faith in the promised Messiah. But we can sh- see a shift in their actions as a result of encountering Christ. So what can this teach us? I think it shows us that We have to be willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus if we're truly to be transformed by him. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or as John Owen wrote, um, more sort of more pithy way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, if we desire to genuinely serve God, then we have to continually root out the sin in our hearts and the detrimental habits in our lives, and we have to trade them for the all-encompassing joy of knowing Christ. Martin Luther wrote that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so as we venture into this new decade, may it be a resolution for us to walk in continual repentance, to learn to treasure Christ above all. See, part of the story of the wise men that when you read through this, you kind of miss, or at least I miss, unless I slow down, is that the wise men didn't have the star to follow for the whole journey. Now, it does say that they saw the star in verse 2, and that they headed west toward Jerusalem, toward the direction of the star. But then, apparently, they didn't have the star anymore, or else it wasn't being very, you know, clear, like my 10-year-old Tom-Tom that we used to try to get to Branson and back. Um, They don't know where to go because they have to stop and ask for directions. So, after determining that Bethlehem is, you know, five miles away from Jerusalem, and that's their actual destination, apparently the star shows back up at this point and to, to take them on this last five-mile stretch of their trip. And verse 10 says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a really strong way to say that these guys were really, really happy when they saw the star. They didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice in excess. Matthew says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overcome with joy in this moment. Great joy. Joy that would be for all people. Joy that only comes from pursuing Christ. See, ultimately, great joy is not just the theme of Advent. It's not just what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. Great joy is the theme of the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Or listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah when he looks forward to this, this joy. He said, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So as we, as we begin this new decade, hopefully seeking God through his word. Hopefully giving freely and sacrificially and hopefully walking in continual repentance. May doing all of those things be for the joy that is set before us. The indestructible and inexpressible, indescribable and everlasting joy of knowing Christ and living to see his kingdom come. See, Christian, that doesn't mean that every moment of every season is going to be filled with happiness in your life. But if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then he wants to produce his fruit in you. And we know that joy it's a fruit of the Spirit. The joy is to be a defining factor. I don't mean like a superficial, like bubbly, nothing ever goes wrong kind of temperament. But I mean the joy, the deep, everlasting, 
indestructible joy that can only be found in Christ. As we move into a new decade, a new year, would you pursue that joy? Not because the joy is an end in itself, but because if we pursue Christ with all that we are, we will find that joy that can only be found in Him. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the indestructible joy of knowing Christ. God, the joy that can only be found in Him. And God, we thank you that the the good news of great joy of Advent is for all people. God, that it is for us. And God, yet it is so easy to get mired down in the circumstances of our lives, God, and whatever else we have going on, Lord, and to forget what you have called us to. God, that you want your joy to be in us, Lord, and we know that that joy is only found in pursuing Christ. God, in giving all that we have, all of our time, all of our resources, God, in giving up the destructive habits, the sin that is in our lives, Lord, in pursuing after Christ as our greatest treasure, God, we know that it is only that pursuit that leads us to the joy that you offer us. And God, we thank you uh, as we reflect upon an old year, God, and look forward to a new one, Lord, that you will accomplish your will. God, that you will stars and empires to accomplish your will, Lord. So we know that you willed our lives, our hearts. God, would you mold them? God, would you give us a posture of surrender as we respond to you today? God, would you allow us to, um, to, to, to root out the things in our hearts that are not of you? God, and would you replace them with, with what is of you? God, as we prepare now to uh, encounter what you've done for us at this communion table, will you, would you allow us uh, to respond, Lord, with, with somberness or with repentant hearts? God, knowing that, uh, Lord, we are unworthy, but because of what Christ has done for us, Lord, in laying down his life upon the cross, Lord, you offer us forgiveness. Lord, you wash us and make us clean. Lord, you make us whiter than snow. Lord, so we ask that you would have mercy on us according to your unfailing love and your great compassion. Have mercy on us as we end this year, as we embark upon another, God, that we would pursue you and treasure you more than anything else. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.